This is the, the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost, so about 50 days after the resurrection. Here's what the Word of God has to say. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Resurrection Sunday, it is a big deal. There's really not a more important truth than the resurrection for Christians. Paul rightly declares in his letter to the Corinthians that the entirety of our faith, I mean everything about our faith, rests on whether or not Jesus rose from the grave. Now it's good and it's helpful for you to think about uh, and work out issues of theology and doctrine. You ought to be doing that. You ought, to, you ought to strive to be getting your theology right, your, your doctrine right, to understanding the Scriptures well. In fact, those under the Lordship of Jesus rightly desire to be obedient to His Word and faithful to His commands and, and most faithful and most obedient as, as we possibly can. Therefore, those who are disciples of Jesus spend their entire lives working out, thinking about, trying to be better about our doctrine, our theology, our understanding of Scripture. And yet, friends, the saving gospel is, is so simple that a child can understand it. Sometimes faith to believe is difficult, but understanding is not. This is the beauty of God's grace. Salvation is only found through faith by grace, simple enough for a child to understand, but powerful enough to save the most wicked of sinners. So our passage today is not a traditional Easter Sunday passage. Maybe the traditional passage would be to go to one of the Gospels where uh, the recounting of Jesus rising from the grave. Those are certainly appropriate and good. I, I preach them often on Resurrection Sundays. But today, our passage comes from really the first sermon of the church. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaching to the, the Judeans and specifically those who are in Jerusalem, preaching the gospel. And here's what he preached. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, repent from your sin, believe and be saved. In verses 22, 23, and 24, what we read this morning, Peter lays out the foundation of the gospel. When I mean simple, foundational, fundamental, I, I mean that this is the most simple, the most fundamental truths. But you know that the, the way this works is, if you don't get the fundamentals, you don't get the other things either. So this morning, the sermon is rather simple. 
But dear friends, do not let the simplicity of this sermon fool you. These things are weighty. Peter declares these things. God gave his son. You killed his son. And God raised him from the dead. Amen. Amen, indeed. Let's begin with God gave. In verse 22 and 23, the first part of verse 23, Peter makes clear that it was God, according to his foreknowledge, according to his infinite, eternal plan, that God gave Jesus for the redemption of our sins. He says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and mighty wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the what? Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, a couple of things under the idea of God gave. First and foremost, Peter says that God gave a sufficient testimony for and of Jesus. The testimony of the resurrection is the culmination of the greater testimony of God to who and what Jesus is. Peter says that those he is preaching to, after referencing the mighty works and wondrous signs, uh, wonders and signs that God did, with, he says to these, he sent these simple words to these people he was preaching, he says, as you yourself know, in other words, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. God has provided for you wonders and signs, the prophets, the testimony of the law, all these things to testify to who and what Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, it is not your job to convince the world of the truth of the gospel with intelligent arguments, with slick marketing, or with compelling presentations. Now, I'm not knocking that we ought to present well the gospel, but sometimes I think we can be, we can be discouraged. Well, we don't have the, the, the PR budget to put out slick commercials and, and impressive PR campaigns for Jesus. That's okay. You may feel un, uh, in, inadequate. Well, you don't know all the depths of the, the doctrines of salvation and, the, and, and soteriology and all big fancy words that you'll never use in regular conversation. And you can't rightly articulate all those sort of things. You're not smart enough, intelligent enough, knowledgeable enough to share the gospel. Friends, that's not what it's needed. It's not your job to convince the world of the truth of the gospel because Peter says God has provided a sufficient testimony for who Jesus is and the truth of the gospel. Those in rebellion against God often use the excuse that more information or a better testimony is needed for them to believe. Still not convinced. I need a little something more or whatever. Friends, Jesus rejected this when he used the parable of the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. You may, you may know this story. Jesus tells a parable about a rich man who enjoyed all the wealth of the world and a poor man named, named Lazarus who was sick and poor his whole life. In the parable, both die. The rich man goes to hell. And amongst other things that the rich man asks, he begs God to send Lazarus to his brothers who are yet still living. 
And he says, send my brothers, I mean, send Lazarus to my brothers, basically tell them of the torment I'm experiencing in hell, that they might believe and be saved from this. And Jesus says, no. Jesus teaches that God responded by saying this, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Friends, God gave His Son Jesus and gave us a sufficient witness to who He was through the law of Moses, through the prophets, through His mighty works, through His miracles, and especially through His resurrection. The, the resurrection is the greatest testimony to the hope of the gospel. The resurrection is the testimony of God that Jesus is His Son, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who brings hope. The resurrection is the demonstration of God's power that gives us hope. The hope of the, res of the gospel rests on the testimony of the resurrection. God gave a sufficient testimony and God's will, Peter says, was for, the, for his definite plan, according to his foreknowledge, was to offer, to give his son Jesus for our sin. That's what he says in the first part of 23, where he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Delivered up, meaning given on the cross, according to the definite foreknowledge, foreknowledge plan of God. This is important. Listen, the resurrection was not an afterthought or reaction to the works of men. So God in heaven, when wicked men sought to kill Jesus and hang him on the cross, was not fretting in heaven going, what do I do now? But Peter says, no, this, all of this, all of the events of Holy Week, all of the events that led up to the cross, all of that was according to God's perfect plan. God gave His Son as an offering for our sin. All the way back, thousands of years before the crucifixion, the prophet Isaiah declared that it was the will and pleasure of the Lord to give Jesus as a guilt offering for men's sin. This is what the prophet said. He said, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offering. He shall, I mean, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This testimony of the redemptive will of God is what Peter is referring to when he says in the first part of verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite and foreknowledge plan of God. Wicked men may have conspired against Jesus, but it was God's purpose to give his son. Roman soldiers may have nailed his hands and feet to the wooden beams of the cross, but it was God who purposed, according to his foreknowledge, to give his son as an offering for our sin. Friends, God gave Jesus for you. 
We love this verse. I hope it's so familiar to you that it's hidden in your heart by memory. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, God gave Jesus with and on purpose. Now, the second thing that Peter says here is that you killed Jesus. In the second part of verse 23 is an accusatory word. The Bible says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Friends, it's important for us to remember that Jesus died for your sin. The most brutal and accusatory word that Peter speaks is in the second half of verse 23 when he says, you killed. Peter could have pointed the blame at others. There were other people that he could have blamed. He could have said, the Pharisees conspired against Jesus. Don't you remember? If you've read the gospel accounts, you know that almost from the very beginning of Jesus preaching, the Pharisees hated him, conspired against him, him tried to kill him, and, and at the cross felt like they had been successful. The Sadducees. So if the Pharisees were religious conservatives, the Sadducees were religious liberals, but they too hated Jesus. They conspired and, and plotted against Jesus. The, the chief priests, when they had the, the trials of, of Jesus after he had been accused, they, they, you can talk for, for days about how they illegally held the trials, how they inappropriately and, and unfairly accused him of blasphemy, which indeed he had not. He was innocent, and yet they found him guilty. Pilate accused him of being, accused him unjustly and condemned him to death. The crowd shouted for him to be crucified. The Roman soldiers beat him and nailed him to the cross. And it's possible that those who were hearing Peter preach that day, it's very possible, and I think probably likely, that many in, the room, in, that, in that crowd would have said, Peter, I wasn't a Pharisee. I wasn't a Sadducee. I wasn't in the crowd that day. I'm not a Roman soldier. I had nothing to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. These many years later, you sitting in your pew today can make that same claim. You're not a Pharisee. You're not a Sadducee. You're not a, a chief priest. You weren't a Roman soldier. You weren't in the crowds that day. You didn't have anything personally to do with the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And yet, what does Peter say? You killed Jesus. I was previewing this point with my family this week, and I said that. And my family had a visceral response to that. In fact, one of them said, now when you start pointing fingers, make sure you point at somebody other than just me. Because <laughs> it's a little unsettling, isn't it? We're okay talking about Jesus being crucified if somebody else did it, but it's a little different if the finger is pointed at you. But that's exactly where Peter points it. You killed Jesus. You may say, I had no part of any of these groups, and yet to the assembly in Jerusalem and to us today, Peter clearly accuses us as crucifying Christ. It may have been by the hand of others, but you crucified and killed Jesus because you crucified him because it was for your sin 
that he gave his life. Oh, friends, if he didn't die for you, if it wasn't for your sin that he died, then you have no part of his redemption. Receive the accusation. Own the accusation. You killed Jesus because he went to the cross for your sin. Romans 5 says, But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for your sin. And he died to satisfy the wrath of God that was over you. Those who deny the testimony of the scripture have long hated, have long hated any discussion of the wrath of God. Theological liberalism, this is where they first go. They first deny the death and, death and uh, the physical death of Jesus. And then they say, but, and then they want to deny any testimony to the wrath of God. I was recently in a church service, not our own. And in the service, the song we were singing as a congregation, um, uh, Kristen Getty's uh, song, The Power of the Cross. Now, you may not know the, the it by its title, but you'll know it when I begin to say the words. I, I know the song very well. It's one of my favorites. But I noticed as we were singing the song that the hymnal we were singing out of had changed the words. They had weakened the hymn. They had denied the hymn the very testimony that gave it such power and hope. Here's the original lyrics. The Gettys wrote these words. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. This is the best line in the whole song. Took the blame. Bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. I love those words. Took the blame. Bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. So I was in that service. I had, I was standing there singing and anticipating. If you know the song, it builds. Wrath is the, the, the pinnacle of the chorus. And here we go singing. And they had the words on the screen like we do. And up on the screen, here's what they had. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame. Bore the shame. We stand forgiven at the cross. Friends, the songs we sing are testimonies of theology. The words matter. There is indeed shame in sin. You ought to be shameful when you sin. But shame is a feeling. Shame is an emotion. And because of that, you can ignore shame. Have you not ever heard somebody say, well, you ought to be ashamed of yourself? You know what they're saying? You've done something shameful, but you're not feeling the right emotion about it. Do we not live in a world today that is celebrating shameful things and not feeling shameful about it? You all feel shame. But hear me, friends. Jesus did not die to make you feel better. Jesus didn't die to, to minister to your emotions. I'm not saying that your emotions aren't important. But Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God that was over you because of your sin. Amen. Oh, dear friends, 
Feel shameful, but worry about the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9 says this. It says, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood. We much more shall be saved by Him from the what? The wrath of God. For if, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Oh, friends. You killed Jesus because He died for your sin. And He died to satisfy the wrath of God. Praise God for that. One other thing. If there's a best part, this is it. God raised. The simplest, most familiar, most common testimony of the gospel throughout Scripture is this. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised again. You got to have this, you got to have this, the resurrection, if you are to have the gospel at all. Look with me in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's important to say God raised. Because in saying that God raised Jesus from the grave, we understand that God received the offering of Jesus. Now, the semantics of who raised Jesus may seem like a small thing, but it's not. You may not have thought deeply about this. You may even thought as you're thinking about the resurrection, Jesus rose from the grave, which he did, but sometimes when we say that, we assume that it was Jesus who raised himself. But the Bible doesn't say it that way. The Bible says that God raised him from the dead. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus raised him from the grave. It says that God raised him. Here's just some, some passages for you. This one, Acts chapter 2, verse 24, God raised him up. It says the same thing in Acts 2, 20, 32, 3, 15, 4, 10, 10, 40, 13, 30, 13, 37. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? That God raised him from the dead? 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and God raised the Lord and will also give us up by his, raise us up by his power. All of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, that chapter says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Jesus was raised from the grave and set at the right hand of God because God received his offering. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who who are being sanctified. Friends, the resurrection is God's glorious declaration that the offering of Jesus was good, that the offering of Jesus was perfect, that the offering of Jesus was accepted as a once-for-all atonement for sin. 
So while we don't have an altar here today where we sacrifice bulls and rams and lambs, because we have Jesus who was the once for all sacrifice for sins. God received the offering of Jesus. God raised Jesus to life. Jesus was the first of many. In the great chapter on the resurrection to the Corinthian church, Paul says of Jesus that he was the first fruits. In verse 20 of that chapter, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is what Peter is pointing to in verse 24, that God raised Jesus to life. His resurrection gives hope for our own resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, Paul writes it this way. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The hope of eternal life in Christ rests on God raising Jesus to life. We have hope today that we live even if these bodies die because Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. God raised Jesus as a receiving his offering for our sin. God raised Jesus to life and God will raise all who believe. Here's the big point. In our church tradition as Southern Baptists, we typically conclude our services with an invitation. Now, ending your service with invitations is not prescribed or demanded in Scripture. It's just what we have, have done. It flows out of our tradition, out of revivalism tradition and those sort of things. But the reason why we do that is because when we preach the gospel, Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again. We understand that, that there's a response to that. I often say you, truth demands a response. Either you reject it or you receive it. And so as the, our tradition is at the end of our service, today I'll give an invitation and I'll say, if, you're, if God has been moving in your heart to receive him under salvation, this is an opportunity for you to come, give feet to your action, make a public declaration that you, declaration that you believe on Jesus for salvation. It's interesting, this first sermon of the first church, Peter didn't end his sermon with an invitation. He ended it with a declaration. Skip down just a little bit to verse 36, if you've got your Bible still open. Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And then the Bible tells us that the crowd believed and they asked Peter and the rest of the disciples what they must do. That's verse 37. And in verse 38, this is his response. And Peter said to them, repent 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's a good word, friends. Repent and be saved. That offer is for you, for your family, and for all who are far off. And the Lord our God may call. This word unto salvation is similar to another request of one who believed in Acts chapter 16. And the response to the jailer was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This is why John wrote to the, uh, wrote to the church. Uh, and he says in 1 John chapter 5, I, I write these things to you uh, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is what Paul teaches in the letter to the Romans when he says in chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then later in chapter 10 where he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Resurrection life is received through believing faith, repenting of sin, turning away from sin and self, turning to Jesus in belief and confession. As we sit here today, so many years removed from what those first believers experienced, over 2,000 years now, the question that every man, woman, and child still must contend with is, has God raised Jesus from the grave? Now be careful before you answer that too quickly. I'm guessing, because you're in a church on a Sunday morning on Resurrection Sunday, that your inclination would be to answer that in the affirmative. If I were to ask you, has Jesus raised from the grave, risen from the grave? Your impulse would be to say yes. The religious leaders of the day attempted to cover it up by spreading the lie that the body of Jesus was not resurrected but stolen and hidden by his disciples. And if that were true, then nothing the Bible says is true and should be believed. Every one of us remains under the wrath of God and Jesus and all that he taught can be safely ignored. Has Jesus risen from the grave? See, the reason why I say be careful the way you answer that is because the testimony of what you believe about the empty tomb is not demonstrated by what you say it's demonstrated in what you do. Friends, I believe, I believe that the tomb is empty and that God has raised Jesus from the grave. I believe that God accepted his offering as a guilt offering for man's sin, for my sin. I believe that through Jesus alone is the forgiveness of sins, the satisfaction of the wrath of God, and the hope of eternal life. I believe that even if I die, 
I believe that even if I die, I will rise again. Because Jesus was the first fruits that God raised from the dead. And according to his promise and his power, all those who believe in faith on Jesus, God will also raise from the dead. Today on this Resurrection Sunday, you too have the opportunity to believe. Do you believe? Do you believe that God gave his son for your sin? Do you believe that you killed Jesus, that he died for you? Do you believe that God, according to his infinite glorious power, raised Jesus from the grave? Forever and ever, for all of eternity, giving hope to those who believe in faith that they too can have eternal life. Friends, you have the opportunity today to repent of your sins, to believe on Jesus and be saved. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.